I'm so sorry, Father. As long as it's suckling, we're safe. But it grows, and I fear that once it has drained me from my milk, it will want blood. Throw it in the pit. We can't. It flies. But I can make it fall. And make sure it doesn't come back in the lander. I will never be anything but a creator of death. I will kill it. I'm Holly Fry, and welcome to Raised by Wolves, the podcast, where groundbreaking minds discuss some of the real-life research behind the science featured in HBO Max's sci-fi series, Raised by Wolves. Before we get into our usual heavy scientific discussion, and just a warning, today we're getting pretty heavy, we need to talk about that season finale of Raised by Wolves, where... Holy moly, things got really weird, right? We saw these strange cloaked figures that appear to be part of a history of Kepler-22b that existed long before anyone that we know of in the story would have gotten there, and we don't understand what that history is. There's also this interesting parallel going on where... Marcus slash Caleb and (laughs) Campion Sturgis, the creator, as Mother calls him, have led these kind of parallel stories that go in opposite directions, right? Campion Sturgis started as a Mithraic and became a hardcore atheist. And Caleb, now Marcus, started out an atheist and has become a very hardcore Mithraic. We also got to talk about the arrival of Mother's Baby, I'm not sure where one goes to pick up a congratulations on your new flying Skolex monster card, but I will maybe have to DIY it. That was a little unexpected. (laughs) And uh, also, you know, for anybody who loves body horror, we've been getting plenty of it on the show, but this finale certainly delivered in all manner of levels. And while the ultimate episode of the season may have left you a little bit gobsmacked, as it clearly has me, On this companion podcast, we hope, as always, to ground you a little bit and dig deeper into some of the real-life tech, science, and history that inspires the series. And given that the past couple of episodes have displayed the paradoxically creative capabilities of the most powerful weapon ever created by humanity, we thought this is actually a pretty good time to talk about weapons of mass destruction, the technology behind them and their purpose, and what, if any, benefit they may have for humanity. While the phrase weapons of mass destruction really kind of wedged itself into our cultural dialogue during America's 2003 invasion of Iraq, the true birthplace of our understanding of these weapons is, of course, in Japan during the Second World War. 
The atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki showed the world superpowers that an unfathomable destructive force existed and that whoever wielded it was in possession of the greatest political checkmate ever. Since then, numerous countries have stockpiled WMDs, conveying the not-so-veiled message that if push comes to shove, they have the most powerful of negotiating tools available. By the end of the Cold War in 1991, nuclear weapons were soon considered relics, brute force arsenals that no civilized country would ever use, which were, until only relatively recently, still deployed using floppy disks. But with political unrest currently mounting around the world and the composure of several national leaders getting called into question on a daily basis, people have returned to a bit of that Cold War anxiety over whose hand is on the button. And this, of course, brings up the larger question that we examine in Raised by Wolves. Are superweapons ever a boon to humanity? Are all WMDs just doomsday devices? And if so, why keep them around? But before we stare directly into the mushroom cloud, we once again got a chance to sit down with show creator Aaron Guzikowski to find out why he chose to make the series' central character, Mother, a child-rearing weapon of mass destruction. After all, there are many things to fear in Raised by Wolves, right? You have religious zealots, there's an apocalyptic war, there are mutated, crawling, possibly humanoid things that apparently taste like pork, there is that uh, serpent baby we discussed, but it's perhaps the man-made superweapon, Mother, in her full-flying, screaming, body-bursting necromancer form that somehow, strangely, makes Raised by Wolves as relatable as it is scary. Where did the concept of the necromancer come from, and why did you call it that? Well, the necromancer, the name, you know, has to do with death. You know, it's a sort of magic that has to do with speaking with the dead or, you know, deriving power from the dead. Obviously, this weapon is very much, you know, the ultimate destructor. You know, it is all about death. And I like the fact that it kind of reaches back into our more primal fears. You know, I, I like the show being about the ancient and the futuristic cross-pollinating. But I think when it came to, uh, you know, what this thing was going to be able to do... And I'm thinking, all right, well, this is this is very futuristic. This is pretty far out there. Like, I don't think you can really do, okay, 10 years from now, we'll have this, and then we'll have this, this, and this, and that means we'll have that. It, it's kind of an unknown. And I also love the idea that technology 100 years from now, if it was presented to us now, I think some of it would just look like magic. I love that idea that there could be a weapon and the look of the thing is so unbelievable to you that that alone is a force to be reckoned with, that the shock and awe that it, that it produces. And it's both beautiful and horrifying, but it's also impossible, you know, the psychological aspect, the fear. Because also I think it was a weapon created to get people to surrender and convert. We need to create something that will terrify them and say, look, that's the alternative. But the other thing, the, I, I love the, the idea that it can fly, that it manifests all these kind of godlike traits. You know, again, to the idea of the whole religion, technology, and that kind of crossing over, that kind of cross-pollination that can go on. And also how it applies to the, the weaponry, the, the sonics, the, the sound and the sight, you know, and, and the senses being weaponized, like, against us. So, yeah, quite, quite a lot, quite, you know, all sorts of different things. But I think magic was, the, was kind of the big buzzword for me. I like that you talk about how 
this is a mechanism that can convert people to faith by fear. You are, I think, roughly in my age range, which means probably when you were growing up, things like the Cold War were part of the common consciousness. And I have to wonder if those kinds of fears, like that idea of a people just being sort of generally ill at ease with a potential threat that lives in in the world at all times, is part of what inspires some of your work with the androids and how you wrote them in Raised by Wolves. Yeah, I think to some extent, I think... um as it relates to super weapons and the Cold War, you know, as a child, just being terrified. There was all this stuff about what it was going to be like when our country was taken over. And I remember there was some weird PSA where it was an American classroom and that the teacher's teaching. And then at some point she stops. This other woman comes in and tells the other woman to leave. She takes the American flag down off the wall and she starts cutting it up in front of the kids and starts throwing it away. And like, this was on TV. I think it was on NBC in the 80s. I don't know if they would cop to it now, but it was. But also, like, these dreams, the nuclear war dreams, which I think James Cameron did just a great job, that scene in uh, Terminator 2, when they're on the swings, you know, and, you know, you just kind of look over, and then, woof, and it's like this wave. And I've had so many dreams of just seeing the wave come. You know, they're like, oh, shit. Because you can hear the sound, but then you have to wait. You know what I mean? Those those seconds before the thing hits you. So, you know, I think that definitely plays into it as well. I'm much more terrified of nuclear bombs than, than necromancers. Well, it's interesting, though, that you say that, because to me, that's exactly what plays out right in the finale of episode one. As you watch those people realize Mother walking through the arc is going to kill them. It's like that wave coming at them. Yeah. I also want to ask why... And how you kind of set up this scenario wherein Raised by Wolves, even though there is science in their religion, like the Mithraic, very much like a God-fearing, hyper-religious. And then you have the atheists, and yet it is the religious sect that creates the ultimate weapon out of their belief system. Like, how did you decide that that was how that was going to play out? You know, I think it's the story. I think I didn't want to make big assumptions and apply them to the story like, oh, you know, our religious people would never come up with a big technology. Of course, it would be people who don't believe in God who somehow stumble upon whatever the next thing is going to be. But, you know, I think as time goes on, we're all constantly switching roles. And, you know, 50 years from now, and it'll be like, well, that's totally different now. You believe in that, and and those people are over here, and this these people are gone, and this isn't a thing anymore. And I don't know, there's something interesting about uh, just time. You also play a lot against expectations in that this ultimate super weapon is also, in many ways, the most caring and emotional character on the show. What led to that decision? Well, I think the reason is she is so technologically advanced, you know, the depth of her destructive technology, but it's still a technology. It can be repurposed. You know, she is so complicated. So whatever you decide to point that technology in the direction of, it's going to have that same sort of just unbelievable power. So I think the fact that she's reprogrammed to be a caregiver, she's the apex predator and the apex protector uh, at the same time. When all is said and done, how likely do you actually think it is that humanity is going to destroy itself through some technological creation along the lines of a necromancer or something completely different? I don't know. I would say that my biggest hope is that we're so bad at predicting the future 
And we're so completely wrong uh, when we think about, you know, what's coming down the pike. So hopefully, no, hopefully we won't do that. You know, hopefully it'll be something completely different. Like I said, I do fear the nuclear bomb and pray that, uh, I don't know, they all turn to dust someday or, you know, some something magical happens. Other than that, I don't really know what to do about that. It's a hell of a problem. Something Aaron touched on that's a really strong current throughout Raised by Wolves is this supernatural fear that we have of weapons of mass destruction. Mother is obviously a terrifying figure with her head-exploding eyes, her Christ-posed flight, and ear-piercing shriek. But the utter horror that the Mithraic show her is no less spirit-deep than that with which members of my generation regarded the atomic bomb during the 1980s. Both have a bit of the Book of Revelation about them in a sense that if there were a Grim Reaper, this would be its face. Maybe that fear, present even in the hearts of the most grounded scientific minds, is why world disarmament is such an important goal. And this is less about wanting a shiny, happy utopia and just more about that cold flicker in your chest when you hear a siren. And then again, maybe the respect that characters like Campion and Tempest have for Mother's destructive powers is exactly why nuclear weapons are still so much in play. While this is all very, very scary, we do have someone with us today who can hopefully leave us a little more informed about weapons of mass destruction in the world today. Nuclear weapons expert Pavel Podvig is a senior research fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research and a researcher with the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University. He has a degree in physics and a PhD in political science, and he runs the blog Russian Strategic Nuclear Forces. He's also written countless articles on the subject of disarmament strategy. The latest of those, Watch Them Go, Simplifying the Elimination of Fissile Materials and Nuclear Weapons, was published last year. And while Pavel's work focuses almost entirely on the world's nuclear arsenal, he definitely understands the humanity behind the apocalyptic fear that's present in the eyes of every Raised by Wolves character when they witness the necromancer in flight. Here's what Pavel had to tell us after watching a few episodes of the show. The first thing I want to talk to you about is really what the purpose of a weapon of mass destruction is. So in Raised by Wolves, the necromancer was basically created as a war ender through its sheer power. Is that really what a weapon of mass destruction is for, at least in theory, to end a conflict quickly and easily? Well, uh, there is a reason they are called weapons of mass destruction, because this is what they are good at, uh, uh, nuclear weapons in particular. And this is the whole purpose to cause destruction, to kill people, to put it kind of bluntly. And that's what distinguishes them from other weapons. And this is a pretty strong uh, difference, I would say, especially with nuclear weapons. We today obviously associate the concept of a WMD with the atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and on Nagasaki, which certainly served as that sort of weapon, which makes us all think about how those are deployed. So how accurate is the stereotype that we often see that there is a single man in every nation essentially with their hand on the big red button? It's a bit complicated, but uh, generally the procedure is that there is someone who has the authority. 
in the United States, it's definitely the president has the ultimate authority. There is no one who can stop him uh, or her from uh, doing that. In uh, other states, we know less about how exactly things are set up, but uh, basically it's also the commander-in-chief has the authority to use nuclear weapons. What made you think violence was an acceptable way of expressing your feelings? What about what we're doing to the creatures? Isn't that violence? They're animals. Humans have always eaten animals. Violence against your fellow humans is different. How many people did you kill on Earth, mother? How many were aboard that ark? Do as I say, not as I do. What kind of stupid nonsense is that? Campion, do not speak to your mother that way. You are better than me, Campion. You are special. I'm not special. I did a violent thing, and I'll do violence again if I have to. No, you will not. You are a pacifist. You mean a pushover. People listen to you, mother, because they are afraid of what will happen if they don't. So in this show, Raised by Wolves, there's this suggestion that even on an alien planet and with a weapon of final destructive power, there is really no end to war. And as an expert in these weapons and someone who really works towards disarmament, do you see war as a constant or do you think we could actually get out of that cycle? I guess I'm an optimist uh, on, on that score, although some people would call me naive. But I do believe that we are already at the point where uh, nuclear weapons are essentially useless because they don't have a useful, quote-unquote, military mission. If you look at uh, the way that countries that have nuclear weapons go about their policies, the fact that they have nuclear weapons has very little to do with what they can actually achieve. So in that sense, uh, I think the kind of threats, the kind of problems that people might be willing to go to war for are not the kind of problems that you can solve with nuclear weapons or with military force in general, I would say. So if you go back to the United States uh, and you look at the, the war in Iraq, I mean, that was the military was the easy part. They defeated Iraq uh, very quickly, but then what? Then there was a long period of very intractable conflict. And I hope there is a slow kind of a recognition of that fact, even if kind of empirically, and the role of war will slowly uh, diminish. We could just get him right now. Say we grab him right now, then what? She's just gonna come after us tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. We gotta destroy her. We're never gonna be safe. Now, one of your current focuses along these lines is disarmament strategies. What is the timeline like for something like that? And what are the difficult stumbling blocks? What are the struggles for someone who is trying to get rid of world-ending weapons? The most difficult problem is political. Technically, getting rid of nuclear weapons is relatively easy. If, If there is a political decision to do so, that can be done, like, tomorrow. But of course, that's where the power thing comes in. It's very difficult to uh, lose kind of this status, to make a decision to get rid of weapons. I, for example, I still believe that the United Kingdom had this kind of a moment in time back in 2007 when they made the decision to modernize their 
nuclear force and build uh, by new submarines and new missiles. I still think that they would have been much better off just at that point saying that, you know what, we will just kind of put our weapons in the bunker. We will not build submarines and uh, we will kind of reserve the right to get back if we have to, but uh, we will not have our weapons kind of out there. And that, that would have been a very smart and very powerful move. They, of course, didn't do that because they said, well, you know what, there's a great uncertainty about what will happen and what might happen. And you, you hear that a lot. The irony, of course, is that people say that as if they have no agency, if they have no kind of role in shaping that future. And they're saying, oh, yes, there, there are terrible things coming, but, but it's in your power to make sure that those terrible things are not coming. Now, when you go out to the forest, it's important to have your sling ready. You don't want to waste time loading it before you start your shot. Hey, we need guns, not rocks. Even if you had guns, eventually you'd run out of bullets. But you'll never run out of rocks. Which brings us to our first lesson. Before we can hunt the creatures, we must learn how to hunt for rocks. I want to talk next a little bit about how... WMDs have changed through the years and progressed. For example, in Raised by Wolves, Mother's Power and her sort of, you know, killing mechanism is contained within her eyes, which can be removed and put back in. But for here on Earth, in reality, what are the main ingredients in nuclear weapons that are, you know, the most vital for them to be considered that? And what of those kinds of things are still being mined or refined? Like, how are we actually functioning in terms of what makes a nuclear weapon? To make a nuclear weapon, you need the very important, the key component that you need is the material. This is what's called the fissile material. This is the material that has the properties that make a weapon possible. And there are two practical materials that can do that. One is uranium-235, the isotope, and another is plutonium. And getting those uh, is a fairly complicated enterprise. The challenge here is that the kind of material that you can use in weapons can be produced by the same facilities that are involved in the nuclear power industry. The uranium that you find in nature contains uh, less than 1% of this isotope, uranium-235. And in order to get to the weapon usable material, you need to somehow increase the content of that uranium-235 in your uranium. And it's not an easy task, but it can be done. Once you have the centrifuge facility that enriches uranium for perfectly peaceful purposes, you do that for nuclear power plants. The difference is you only need to enrich a little bit, you get the 5%. For a bomb, you need like 90%. But the equipment, everything is the same. So the, the kind of the safeguards have to be very, very strong. Your friends didn't get sick. She killed them. She's a necromancer that built for mass extermination. She probably did it without even knowing it. If you think that male android is going to protect us, forget it. He's a generic service model. Necromancers eat those for breakfast. You see, androids that were built to protect us, to do our dirty work so we can stay pure. 
If they had feelings, they'd be useless. You obviously, like you have studied the history and the the current status of various weapons of mass destruction. And I have to wonder, as someone that's just kind of in this discussion all the time, do you ever just become completely terrified of what humans have done and what we're capable of? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the irony of, of this field, you could get kind of into very intricate arguments about the uh, advantages or disadvantages or possible effect of this technology and that technology, the weapon of this size and that size and how to escalate and de-escalate. But again, in the end, it is useful from time to time kind of to, to step back and to think about the effect that these weapons could produce. In that regard, one of the very valuable experiences uh, for me was a visit to Hiroshima in Japan. And there you see that very clearly, that these weapons are good at killing people and they are not really good at much else. The contrast between the, the physical destruction that the bomb in Hiroshima caused and the kind of the human suffering, the contrast is just so huge. You see this dome in Hiroshima that is kind of a half destroyed, but that dome was basically right at the epicenter and uh, it's largely survived. And you can see that basically anything that was built with concrete or stone very much survived. But the bomb killed tens of thousands of people. And that's kind of, again, the, the contrast is very visible there. That was not an easy experience, but it was a very valuable experience. It is accurate to say that dark photons are a poorly understood technology. But the Mithraic designed and built me. How could they not possess a full understanding of their own technology? They followed the formulas they discovered were encrypted in their scriptures. With no real understanding of the underlying concepts. The... the... The, 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 the technology that powers you was a gift from soul, passed down from the heavens at the dawn of man. That is Mithraic propaganda. Perhaps. I only know what I've been programmed to believe. But of course, the same goes for you. It's interesting to think about humanity, right? We discussed earlier whether or not there's always in every country that has nuclear weapons, like that one person who has the authority to use them. But that means also there are people down the line, like the actual lower level workers that would have to do whatever sequence of events has to happen to deploy that weapon. How much do you think about that human side? And what is, I feel like that's stuff that most of us don't really think about, that there's a person whose job it is potentially to be ready to do that. This is a fascinating issue, in fact. So there was a discussion back in the late 80s when the, the end of the Cold War, and I remember there was uh, this uh, interview with a commander of a nuclear submarine. And uh, he basically said something along the lines that, if I realized that my country is destroyed, I probably would not launch my missiles to the attacker because what's the point? It was one of the first kind of public discussions in the Soviet Union as it was opening up and people were like, but this is your duty. It is interesting that we don't know what people would do. 
Uh, for example, in Britain, the procedure that they have is that a submarine, when it goes on patrol, it gets a letter written by the prime minister. It's a sealed letter. They keep it in a safe. And they are supposed to open that letter when everything is lost. So they, when they realize that Britain is destroyed, nobody knows other than people who actually wrote those letters what's in them. So the letter could say, oh, just launch nuclear missiles on Moscow or go to Australia and sort of surrender and make Australia a weapon state. But it's interesting that it's actually, it's up to the captain whether to follow the order. The problem here is that uh, in the in the military organization, you kind of drill this into people, sort of, you, you just follow the orders, you don't think about them. But then again, you, you don't necessarily know. People could, could do certain things that in these kind of situations that you may not kind of expect them to do. So that's the kind of a human part of nuclear weapons, if you will. We can go as soon as I reprogram the two androids, okay? The service model will be more than enough to help. We don't need the necromancer. What if you can control her? Be safer if you destroy her. I'm not destroying her. You spent your whole life watching those things slaughter your friends. I would have thought you'd want to destroy her. I know I do. She's the most powerful weapon on this planet. What if there's more ships coming from Earth? Because without her, whatever we build in a tropical zone, it can be taken away from us. So in the world of Raised by Wolves, obviously, there is this great separation and disparity of two sides that both think they're the correct one and have ultimately destroyed the Earth because of it. No one thinks they're the bad guy, right? Everybody thinks they're the hero in some way or another. But do you, looking at this on a global scale, do you have different players where you're like, no, they're actually the bad guys? Or do you try to look at it in a more holistic humanity worldview? It's complicated, I guess. You could argue that during the Cold War, for example, the Soviet Union was disruptive powers, sort of, and they did a few things that it should not have done. But then again, if you look at the the U.S. Uh, history, I would definitely rather not have anyone having those weapons because they do have a destructive power that is uh, difficult to control. And you would hope that in a kind of a more open democratic society, if you will, uh, there will be more accountability and there will be more deliberation. But unfortunately, the history doesn't show that that's the case. It's not like anybody would be able to use nuclear weapons for some good purpose. I wouldn't say nuclear weapons didn't have the role in shaping the, uh, the history, but this role is not like clear-cut, so the, the good guys deter the bad guys from doing bad things. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated. How often or how close have we actually come at various points in time to a potential extinction level event because of weapons of mass destruction? I know there have been some close calls historically, but I want to get your take on it. Yes, there there were close calls. I think the, the closest one was definitely the Cuban crisis. 
where every everything actually was going kind of that way to to the confrontation. The good thing about the Cuban crisis, uh, in a way, is that it basically showed everyone involved, which would mean the Soviet Union, the United States, the military, the political leadership, that you cannot really control these things. You could say that before the Cuban crisis, there was this notion that, well, we can use them, these weapons as, as a political kind of a instrument. And the Cuban crisis showed that when it comes to a real crisis, there is no way you could control that. Things will just get out of control. Things will go the way they go. And you don't really have a way of stopping them. There were also accidents of various kinds. We know of a few accidents uh, with the early warning system, for example, in the United States back in the late uh, 70s. They detected uh, a missile attack on the United States, a massive attack from the Soviet Union, and the people started going through the motions, preparing to launch a kind of an informant's president and kind of start this whole process of responding. And then they discovered that, in fact, that was a training tape that was loaded on the computer, which was supposed to show the attack. There was a similar incident in the Soviet Union back around the, the same time in the 70s. Also, the training tape was loaded uh, by mistake. The most famous, quote-unquote, close call, the story of the uh, false alarm in 1983 uh, on the Soviet side, the uh, Colonel Petrov incident. He saw that the satellite shows that several missiles are coming to the Soviet Union, and he decided not to inform the authority, kind of the higher-ups, and uh, kind of prevented the war. I've looked in, into that story. I think it's a bit more complicated. I think that it would have been recognized that it is not a legitimate attack uh, anyway, the way the Soviet system works. But back to the human side of these things, again, the human judgment does matter. Uh, we were probably saved uh, a few times uh, by just the judgment of humans who thought that, well, that should not be happening. This is not happening. I, I, better, I better call my my wife to see if there is a war outside. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It puts a positive spin on all of this. The last thing I want to ask you, because you deal with this all the time, you have probably a command of all of the information that most people do not. It makes me wonder, because there can be so many misconceptions and sort of fear-driven ideas about weapons of mass destruction and what disarmament would mean among sort of just the average person, what do you wish that, like, the average person at home understood about weapons of mass destruction and our potential for disarmament? If we're talking about a message that uh, could be understood by everybody, is that these weapons are only good in killing people. They should not be an instrument of power. They should not be an instrument of status, because they are not. And they are generally not useful in any way. That's the, the message that I think would be correct in my view, uh, although I know that many people would uh, dispute that. And the message would be that 
we do need to think about how to build our system, our world, uh, without those weapons. If you want to have kind of a security and peace, then you need to move in that direction. That'll do it for this episode of Raised by Wolves, the podcast. Lots to take away from our conversation with Pavel, for sure. But above all else, we can only hope that his matter-of-fact regard for nuclear weapons as useless and inhumane is one that is widely accepted in the future. Although, as the finale of Raised by Wolves reminds us, even the act of creating new life can have massively destructive results. As always, I want to thank Aaron Guzikowski for stopping by and Pavel Podvig for providing us with his immense knowledge of our world's epic nuclear arsenal. Whether or not you choose to go back and rewatch every episode of Raised by Wolves, which now, knowing what you know from the season finale, you probably should. I know I'm doing it. Be sure to join us next week for our season finale of the podcast, in which we'll take a look back at all 10 episodes and explore the complex and troubling psychology of the show's most prominent characters, and perhaps of the real-life people who put them on the page and brought them to life on the screen. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Holly Fry. This podcast is produced by Ethan Fixell, written and researched by Chris Crovaton, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max. You now have all of the episodes to go back and enjoy. Enjoy.